I mean, when I when I was a, when I was a teenage boy, I was like 140 pounds, like soaking wet, and I would have gotten my ass kicked. Trust. Me. Have so you ever I, been in a fight? Let me ask you this. A couple times. Okay, couple I've only times. been in one fight. Yeah. Um, I did not win that fight. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing we have in common. Another another thing another thing we have in common. It was yeah. sixth grade. It wasn't fun. Yeah. Yeah. This is Untold, the Connecticut Mayor's news and culture podcast with three simple charges. Challenge assumptions, seek understanding, and leave nothing untold. I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankosky. Together, we're going to set out to find the through lines woven into Connecticut life to trace how each of us is more alike than our assumptions make us think. When we commit to following every thread to reach a deep understanding, it becomes pretty clear that our differences and disagreements might be the result of things left untold. This episode, Recovery from Incarceration. Leaving prison and trying to reestablish life in community comes with an incredible set of challenges. Housing, employment, family relationships, and under it all, recovering from the trauma of incarceration itself. Thousands of people were released from prison in Connecticut in 2020 as the Department of Corrections tried to stem the tide of COVID in its facilities. Coming up, Ryan Lindsay will introduce us to Antonio Rivera, who came home from prison during the first wave of the pandemic in 2020. The day I walked out of Osborne, I was worried about be, uh, getting released because I didn't owe parole or nothing. You know, I was, I did my time. So I was worried about getting kicked to the streets, you know, and being amongst the homeless. And we'll invite Ileana Pujols from Connecticut Justice Alliance into the studio and find out how hard it can be to tell your story as a young person touched by the criminal justice system. I'm just very aware of what I like to share and don't like to share. First time I ever did an event, I told them all my business about my mom, her problems, my family problems. Until this day, I think about like, damn, that did not feel good. Oh, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Like all these people now they have an image. They had me at my weakest point. I was just at the Hartford Capitol. There were so many people. I was like, oh, my God. Like, what do I do? I want to tell them everything. this is private stuff. This is the most yeah, personal thing like, you have, right? Until yeah. this day, I won't even let my mom watch the video because it's, how do I have that conversation with my mom? Untold is brought to you in part by Leadership Greater Hartford's webinar series, Leading in the New Now. It's designed to support community leaders who are navigating emerging and established trends, and it features some of the best leadership minds locally and nationally. Learn more at leadershipgh.org. Untold is also sponsored by UConn's School of Public Policy, a leader in public policy, public management, nonprofit management, and survey research education. What's it actually like to take those first few steps into the community after prison? And how did that experience change as the world went into lockdown? If you're returning to Hartford, you go to the re-entry welcome center at City Hall. Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing? All right. We got one, two. Drop off today. Good morning. If you walk through our doors, my job is to make sure you leave here better than you walked in. Um, I need to take your temperature. You're going to put your today's day, your name, and the time. That day of release is important. But often people don't have anything. And when I say don't have anything, they don't have shampoo, toothpaste, toothbrush. You want coffee? You want coffee too? Okay, so come with me. I'm going to be with you. This pandemic is still going on. Normally, this welcome center is full of people engagement all day long. 
Just, just stand closer there. You know, I gotta keep six feet. You know, that's the city of Hoffman. You can stand closer. Than that. No, I'm gonna give you ten feet. I can't give you an appointment next week or two weeks from now um, when you're in crisis today. They're already dealing with mental health and substance abuse, and now you put them in a world that they say is dangerous that could kill them and tell them you can't have interaction. You got to stay away from everybody. We are creatures that's more like packs. We need physical contact and interaction. And these guys came home to that. That just compiled their problem. I'm okay. How you doing today? Fine, how are you? All right. What's going on? Throughout this pandemic, a drug use increase. PTSD is common just from being locked up. <clears throat> Depression is also common. Um, this one young man, on his fifth day, his mother found him, found him dead in there. Um, he overdosed and died alone in a motel room. Telehealth was a big, huge thing. It really helped, but to some individuals, you want to put them in front of a screen and say, try to receive help. They don't know how to adapt to that. You wanted them to pour their hearts out to a screen. That wouldn't work for them. Mr. Vasquez, nice to meet you. I'm Deb. So where are you living? I was in a halfway house, but they just put me in a parole house. Okay. The reality is if, if an individual coming out of prison doesn't have a safe, affordable place to rest their head at night, the rest is really impossible or, or feels impossible. Prior to the pandemic, you know, there might have been an occasion where someone had to be in a shelter or lived on the street until a shelter bed opened. Today, no one's coming here on the day of their release and not getting a place to live. Things that we had never done before, ever, we were doing in the middle of a pandemic. We can do a lot more than we ever thought we can do. And if we can do the things we did in the pandemic, we should be able to do it all the time. Yeah. Well, really nice to meet you. Yeah. I'm glad you connected with here. That's a good thing, and that you're out and you're doing well. Yes. And hopefully George can connect you to the work program with Open Heart. That would be great. You heard the voices of Deb Rogala, yeah. Gordon Lyde, and George Dillon at Hartford's Reentry Welcome Center. You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Mercy Quay. doing yes sorry. i was i was gonna roll right into rolled, it roll into it roll okay, cool um i think it is absolutely okay to be comfortable with confrontation but when you enter into those moments when you're confronting an issue you need to be strategic and have intention behind it if you're mm -hmm. just planning to be scorched earth mm -hmm. right it's like you'll you'll end up in a situation um like my brother mm -hmm. who right was fine with confrontation and actually ended up being arrested for fighting um when he was 17 years old fighting a friend of his at the mall and they were both arrested and charged with assault and um, batter i mean this whole you know, rap sheet for a fight. Um, and so when I when I talk about, right, like being okay with confrontation, I think we all enter into 
conversations feeling like, yeah, no, I have this under control and kind of forget how easy it is to see things really spiral downward. Oh, oh, absolutely. You, you, your brother spent time in prison. Eight years. For that? He spent, so it was, his original sentence were, was um, eight years and then he was released. For, for a fight? For a fight. At a mall? At a mall. Yeah. Hey, Mercy, and look, I, I'll just tell you, and this is one of the things we've seen so many videos about this. I mean, like the the the, the poster child, sadly, for this is like is Kyle Rittenhouse, right? Yes. The 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 white kid with a automatic weapon walking toward the fight mm-hmm. and peaceful protesters getting carted away yep. from just standing there. I will tell you right now, I never got into a fight at the mall mm-hmm. as a kid. But I had friends who did, and I had friends who did stupid things. Right. And the absolute worst thing that might happen to them is their parents are going to be wicked pissed off. When they pick them up from the security booth at the mall. When they pick them up from the security booth, not from the clink exactly. downtown. Yep. And that's one, of the, that's one of the things about this conversation about incarceration that is maddening to me. But I can't even imagine, frankly, how maddening it must be to your brother. Yeah, So what's really interesting, a lot of people who are impacted by the justice system and have been incarcerated feel as though it was the best thing for them. They have been so brainwashed by the, uh, the, the messaging that says it is a moral failing. You are a bad person. If you are here, it's because you've done something to be here. The system isn't wrong or unjust. You are a bad person and are deserving of being incarcerated. But, but, but is... Whether it's your brother saying this or somebody else, is there potentially some truth to the idea mm. that coming in contact with the prison system, as much as we know that that's a funnel for young black men, as much as we know that almost no good can come of it, as much as we know that it's going to stick with you for the rest of your life, whether mm-hmm. you like, like mm-hmm. it or not, might it not be true that because it didn't happen to you and it didn't happen to me, that they might really feel like Honestly, if I hadn't get thrown in jail, something else worse would have happened to me. And when people come out of the uh, uh, justice system, uh, return from incarceration and feel as though this was the thing I needed to get on the straight and narrow, we have to believe them when they say that. Now, they might not be scholars of the justice system and might not be able to tell you with an articulate tongue, right, that there was a funnel that they Mm -hmm. fell into. And that can still be true, while it is also true that they feel as though they needed it in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain things that maybe, um, you know, make people wake up to their circumstances. And unfortunately, the justice system has been one of those things. I, I think that this, because you have, you have personal family experience with this, uh, you also grew up in a way and with people near you who had a much greater chance of encountering the justice system than I did. This is one of the places where I think our experiences are are most starkly different. Right. And frankly, Mercy, it's just like, it's not just me and you, Mercy and John. It's that almost any black person in America and Mm -hmm. almost any white person in America are going to have that thing as probably just about the biggest barrier between them. The thing I always have to think about every single time I think about the system is is that if I drive home, there's a v- very small chance at all that I'll get pulled over, and then if I get pulled over, anything terribly bad is going to get happen mm-hmm. going to happen to me. 
And while we have rightly made it clear over the course of the last couple of years that it is unacceptable mm -hmm. that black men are pulled over for having a broken taillight and then are shot by police, the idea that they get thrown in jail isn't that much better. Right, exactly. Frankly. Well, I mean, because where that conversation has gone is, well, they deserve to be arrested and, you know, have their day in court just like anyone else. And I was like, mm. We are far too reliant on the justice system to solve most any issue. And this gets back to the point of confrontation and restorative justice conversations. Yeah, Part yeah. of why I'm okay with confrontation is because I don't see these matters as you against me or me against you. I see these matters as us against the problem, mm -hmm. which can make me really poised to enter into a conversation where, you know, someone can feel confronted. But I do, I want you to feel confronted. Let's confront this problem mutual issue we have right alternatively what ends up happening is an uh, a noise complaint comes in from a neighbor who instead of going downstairs and telling their neighbor to turn the music down they called the cops the cops come to investigate this noise complaint and then potentially someone is either arrested or shot that's why we have to become far more comfortable with confrontation than we are as a society but 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 is there so yes absolutely but is there something to be said for the fact that the the biggest structural reform is that wouldn't it be nice though to be able to call someone that could come and help as a mediator? As a mediator in this instance that wouldn't necessarily be bringing a gun or wouldn't necessarily be bringing handcuffs or zip ties, right? Like that's to me the, the bigger thing is we haven't set up a system that allows someone that intermediary because not everyone's going to be comfortable going downstairs. Exactly. For good reason. For good reason. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, it's absolutely. not safe all the time. It's not always safe. And I think a number of things can happen. One, I think the title of that position should be community mediator and we should fund community mediators instead of drastically funding things like, I don't know, what was it? Uh, Justin Ellicker just announced some large sum going towards 500 cameras to reduce crime across the city. You don't reduce crime with cameras. You just watch it happen. There isn't actually any benefit to that. But what if we took that money and put it into an, uh, a wing of the PD that was just for community mediators that could respond to uh, noise complaints, that can respond to um, domestic disputes, that can also perhaps be the folks crossing the crossing guards and the folks um, uh, monitoring traffic. Right. We don't necessarily need armed guards to police our our streets. Well, and, and look at I mean, as we talk about in our series, look at the, the drug issue. If you treat drug use as a crime and the selling of drugs as a crime, as we do, then you're going to have tanks and body armor and you're going to be knocking down doors and trying to round up the bad guys mm -hmm. as they do on the wire. But if you have a, a, a group of people who are like, here, I'm, I'm trained to deal with people who are in the midst of abuse, in the midst of, of uh, some sort of bad outcome, mm -hmm. including an overdose, then all of a sudden things turn around just a little bit. But we, we haven't prioritized any of those things. It's that we, by our nature, since our founding, have been a punitive people. Mm -hmm. Justice means if you wronged me in some way, I get retribution. Mm -hmm. As opposed to justice should look like if you wronged me in some way, why can't we sit down and figure things out? Your life should not be 
exponentially worsened because of this moment that you've wronged me. Yeah, and, and, and how do we, at the end of the day, just really make things better after that wronging? I mean, there needs to be someone needs to accept responsibility mm-hmm. to a certain extent for having done wrong to somebody else. Right. It's not just that it's patently unfair the way we do it. Mm-hmm. You could leave it at that. But let's say somewhere in America, you don't even really necessarily care that it's mostly young black men in prison. Right. And you just don't care about that fact. Right. It doesn't work from a societal standpoint to do it that way. Mm-hmm. It's costly. It's expensive. You have a whole group of people who don't have an opportunity to contribute in a meaningful way because you've taken that away from them. Right. And if we were to think about this in the economic terms, if peop- even if you don't care that it's young black boys that are being incarcerated in droves, right, you could care that our taxes are going towards supporting this system. Where else could our taxes be going Right. You could care that because we are um, funneling tax dollars into the system, but also taking players out of the, uh, you know, economy out of being able to earn an income, they are not paying into a system. And not just temporarily, but forever. Right? Forever. Their, their prospects, their ability to innovate, to, to be entrepreneurs, to get a job, to fill a job that you have. It is impacted by this time period that they have spent behind bars that never, ever goes away. Yeah. We are all just incredibly lucky, those of us who have not had to Hmm. have intersection with the incarceration system, that we are on this side of it and that other people are on the other side of it because the rules of our society are so complex Mm -hmm. and so changing that... Uh, there's a very thin line that keeps me on this side and somebody else on the other side. Um, journalists in other countries get thrown in jail for doing their job, mm-hmm. for just doing their job. In some states now, abortion providers mm-hmm. may be getting thrown in jail yep. for just doing their job. It is a very quickly changing landscape. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, one thing to think about whenever you think about whether or not you care about an incarceration system that's filled up with young black men that you may not have any understanding of. It's that if the rules change just a little bit, you're on the other side of that. If our legal system is as fickle as it is proving to be, it, it means that one or two moves down the board and you could be on the other side. It's such a good point. And I think, so uh, recovery is the is the name of the game, sort of the, the word, the theme that we're focused on. One of the words that when I think about the incarceration, the incarceration system, the, the justice system that comes to me and has come to me for about 12 years is the word tussle. Mm. And for no other reason than because the judge in my brother's uh, trial after his fight at the mall asked him as he was standing in court, right, discussing what happened. The judge asked my brother to detail what happened, and my brother used the word tussle. The judge, already making a number of assumptions about my brother, um, prodded him. It was like, tussle, what does that mean? My brother then repeated, he's like, tussling. We were tussling. And the judge challenged him as though he was making something, making a phrase up, tussling. I don't know what that is. That's not a word. What you were having said was a fight. It, it, it was a fight. It was a fight. Right. But 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 challenged him enough that it's that 
in his mind, I always imagined this judge to think of us and assumed ignorance of us. But the word tussle for me is the word that defines my experience with the justice system. Wow. I think, you know, looping back to that, it, it really is true that that fight on a playground that I, I had a couple times in my life, playground fights. Yep. There was never one thought in my mind that mm-hmm. anything worse would have ever happened to me that my mom would have gotten called and I would have gotten a, a severe talking to. Yeah. That, that is like the worst that could have happened to, you know, John Dankosky, suburban white kid. Yeah. There is this inherent sense that, right, the bodily autonomy that white people have isn't afforded to black people. And I could talk about, you know, generations of slavery that have made people feel an ownership over black bodies. But on a simple basis, I think the fear that you would have had that your parents would have been really pissed. I know that the thing that is possible for me if I get into a a tussle on the playground right, is if there's a cop walking by or if someone calls the cops, right, I and if the person I am uh, fighting with uh, is also black, we will be arrested. Now, if I am black and that person isn't black, I will be arrested. That is the reality that I've always lived with. I think that's probably a good point for us to dive into the episode. That's a good place to end things. Yeah. 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 You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Mercy Quay. You can learn more about our podcast at ctmirror.org forward slash untold. You'll find bonus content and look behind the scenes. We want to hear from you. You can email us at untold at ctmirror.org or engage with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ctmirror. You can send us your untold stories and tell us what's happening in your community. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hamilton, executive editor of the Connecticut Mirror. Our impact reporting is made possible because of the financial support of members like you. If you are a Connecticut Mirror member, thank you. You're helping to create and sustain in-depth news coverage here in the state. If you haven't yet supported the Connecticut Mirror, I encourage you to do so. Nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism like this is vital to our democracy. Go to ctmirror.org and click the red donate button. Thank you. For those of us who haven't been touched by the criminal justice system, it might be hard to imagine a life that's fundamentally shaped by an experience behind bars. Ryan Lindsay has been talking with one Hartford man who spent most of his adult life incarcerated until he was released in the middle of the pandemic. Um, How old are you? Me, I'm 61, about to be 62 in May. I'm still a young man. (laughs) Young buck. (laughs) <laughs> and um, so how old were you when you were first incarcerated? I got incarcerated when I was 22, 23, going on 23. It's a Tuesday afternoon and Antonio Rivera is dressed to the nines. Caramel suede French jacket, khaki slacks, yellow tie, gold vest, and a brown button-up shirt that matches his brown hat. So we're just going to start a little bit from the beginning. Antonio has graciously agreed to talk to me about what it was like coming out of prison in April 2020, as the pandemic shut the world down. When I came out, it was really crazy, you know, but I was, I was determined not to go back to jail.
The last time Antonio walked the streets of Hartford as a free man was in 1997, but that was only for a few months. Before that, he'd been incarcerated since 1983. Antonio is honest. He says he'd gotten arrested a lot growing up, but a judge sentenced him to 15 years in prison for robbery and assault. By the time 1997 rolls around and he steps out of prison once again, Antonio is in his late 30s and Hartford is a completely different place with more gangs and more violence. It was chaos, violence. It was just crazy. It was actually worse than what it was now. Antonio wasn't interested in getting back involved with gang life, but his previous criminal charges made it nearly impossible for him to get a job. People weren't hiring former felons back then. Was Hartford like more, I don't know, I want to say like more popping than it is now? I feel like there's not... Popping. That's a funny (laughs) word. The only thing that was popping around back then was guns. It was a lot different from early 80s, and I couldn't adjust and I committed a violent act against another person that wanted to get it popping. There used to be a spot off of Park Street called the Copa Cafe. After a less than friendly interaction inside, then outside of the club, Antonio ended up shooting and injuring another man. As you can imagine, that quickly landed him back in jail. This time, a judge sentenced him to 23 and a half years. During the 23rd year of Antonio's sentence, COVID-19 shows up. But at first, it didn't face him. I don't want to sound too bitter, but we was being confined. You know, when it came to exercise, they wasn't allowing none of that, even before the COVID scare. In jails and prisons in Connecticut, COVID made its way in from the outside by way of correctional officers and other staff. The Department of Corrections was worrying about inmates being sick with COVID. On all reality, Department of Correction officers come to work and affect everybody. April 2020 marked the first time someone incarcerated in Connecticut died from COVID. And the same month, Antonio became a free man again. One of more than 3,000 people, a historic number released between March and December of that year. Finding a safe place to stay is always the first big challenge. The day I walked out of Osborne, I was worried about uh, getting released because I didn't owe parole or nothing. You know, I was, I did my time. So I was worried about getting kicked to the streets, you know, and being amongst the homeless and stuff like that. It's frustrating and it's hard. All right, so let's go through a quick timeline again. In April 2020, Antonio gets out of prison. From April to July, he's in a halfway house. In July, he gets help from the Hartford Reentry Center, then briefly stays in a hotel. I didn't go out much. I was afraid to. Why were you afraid? People, the way things were, I, I, I didn't want to get in trouble or nothing. Then he gets placed in an apartment in the North End with two roommates where he lives for about a year before moving into a one-bedroom apartment at a senior center. 
Remember, Antonio is 61. I was able, you know, to get Social Security because I was disabled and I was, I do have PTSD and I was a mess when I came out. I am still a little bit, but at least I'm more comfortable staying to myself now and I got places to adjust on my own. Keeping to himself is one way Antonio's learned to cope with feelings that he would have dealt with differently in the past. I have off days, you know, and stuff and get depressed and whatnot. I try not to go out of, out of that door, you know, with a, uh, negative thoughts or whatnot so I can succeed in everything that I do. Since getting out, Antonio's experienced a lot of firsts. I'm proud of having a license, which I never had in my life. I own a car, got my own apartment. Now and then I do odd jobs, you know, or volunteer soup kitchens or what have you, just to keep myself busy. Antonio's still wrapping his head around who he's become, and he's made a promise to himself. I made good on what I was going to do, you know, my promise that I was going to, I'm not going back to jail. I will die if I go back to jail because I will never get released again. Antonio turns 62 in May. For the first time since the 1990s, he'll get to celebrate his birthday not from behind bars, but beyond them. You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Mercy Quay. Yeah. Let's, we, we dove right in, as, as we are wont to do with these. Um, so, so why don't we start back, to the, start back to the beginning here. Give us your name and tell us what you do. So my name is Ileana Pujols. I'm the policy director at the Connecticut Justice Alliance. And that's a sh- Short little. That's right, right? That's, I, I, I mean, that is right. <laughs> that, that is right. right. You want to say anything is, else? That is right. Um, and you say you've been doing this work for about five or six years? Since the end of 2017. How did you get involved in it? Why are you doing this? Um, I graduated from an alternative high school. I myself was in the system when I was 12 to 18. And when I graduated, my program director knew the Alliance some way, somehow. And they were doing work on girls in the system. And they had me come in. I ended up getting connected with them. They were offering money for people to come do this video. So I was like, great, I need money. This is amazing. Um, after that, we did an event at the Capitol about the girls' video. And I was just, it got more exciting. Then after that, they developed the Justice Advisors, which was their youth adult partnership model. So I started as one of their founding members. And then over time, got past the money and the desperateness of needing the money and actually started getting interested in the work. And I was like, oh, this is a thing. I can sit at this table. I could change this. I could talk to this person. And I was like, oh, this is great. Who does this at my age? I was 19 <laughs> years old, having conversations with judicial. Wow. It's kind of cool. Who, who, who are the justice advisors? Tell me about it. So the justice advisors is my little baby. That's what I like to call it. I've been there since the beginning. Um, the justice advisors are essentially a group of directly impacted young people, primarily ages 18 to 25, who all have a passion in reforming the system in some way. But essentially their role is to not only with their experience, but also gather experiences from communities and kind of feed that directly to policymakers as they get the opportunity to sit down in conversations with with judicial or sit down in conversations with a legislator. Hmm. How effective have they been? What sort of things have they participated in? Looking back at it now, compared to when we started in 2017, it's kind of interesting to see the little wins. Um, 
Like, for example, when I first started with the Justice Advisors, not a lot of people were having conversations about credible messengers. And then we came in, we started having conversations with Judicial about credible messengers. Now you'll see that built into most of their RFPs. Um, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what credible messengers are. So credible messengers are essentially exactly how it sounds. But it's essentially somebody who has been in the system who has now turned into some sort of like a role model mm -hmm. um, or just a positive influence for other kids who, who are like them. And I kind of like to call it the silver bullet because it's, it's a kid being able to connect with somebody who looks like them, has been through similar situations as them, and still might be going through similar situations who can really help them gear towards a more positive pathway. I mean, there are certain issues. When I used to spend a lot of time at the Capitol, there are certain issues that I felt like lawmakers would like turn the other way and run away from. And almost anything having to do with justice reform, they just don't want to have anything to do with it. Like they, it's not it's not unless you have a constituency that is specifically interested in this. You just don't want to have anything to do with it because no one back home who's going to vote for you is necessarily telling you that that's what they want you to spend time on at the Capitol. I think sometimes it's like playing, let me put you in my shoes kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the biggest problem with the policy, exactly what you were just saying, is people only focus what's going on in their town, in my city, my constituents. When really, when we talk about things like criminal reform, we need to look at it as a state, right? Because if we take a look at the prison system, we know who's in there. It's usually New Haven, Waterbury, Hartford, Bridgeport people, right? Um, I think that's... Navigating that is hard, um, and often I feel like sometimes I, I'm teaching people a different life or telling them about something they're not used to, and that is often the time, like, what I find myself doing when I have conversations with legislators who aren't necessarily the most interested in talking about criminal reform um, or justice reform, youth reform, whatever it may be. So, I like, I'm trying to think of an example. I don't want to give specific names, but we had, we had did a conversation with a legislator not too long ago. We ended up putting an event together. And just them giving us 20 minutes of being able to talk about what we do, our experience, and what we've been able to find through conversation was like exposing them to a completely different world. Wow. And they were like, oh, well, I never thought about things like that. And I never thought about this. And it's like, you see what 20 minutes of a conversation can get you. And granted, you're not going to get that opportunity with all the legislators. But if I can get one out of every five or one out of every eight to be able to sit down and have a 20-minute conversation with me, I'm going to use that 20 minutes very wisely. And I'm going to make sure that I hit you in the heart. I want you to understand why this is an issue, how it may be an issue for somebody who's not like you, and why it's important to hear about that. And that's kind of been my approach and how I have those conversations. So, I mean, what I find really interesting about that, right, I used to work for this organization. Um, we did, like, education reform. And mm -hmm. at the start of events, particularly with legislators, but even if it was just among a, a, a group of, you know, like-minded individuals, they would have... You know, other staffers stand up and give a story of self, which ended up at the end of the story feeling very exploitative. And so what I'm wondering is when you're sort of doing this deep work with legislators, and often it's it's young people giving their stories, right? Mm -hmm. How are you sort of navigating that minefield of what feels like I have to give you trauma porn in order for you to to relate to me? I speak for my, like, if me as an individual, I've been doing this work for five, six, going on six years now. So I feel like I've come to a point where I'm very comfortable of knowing what to share and what not to share. How we do that with our team is very different. 
um, I would never put, or us as a team would never put a justice advisor in a predicament where they would be telling their story to a legislator if they've only been on board for an, a year, right? Even a year and a half. We have justice advisors who've been on board for two years and nobody knows their story, right? Because we don't force them to have that conversation. Um, we try to always say, like, just share what you're comfortable sharing, but also keep in mind that you don't know what somebody's intent is behind your story, mm-hmm. right? So somebody might be listening to your story and you may be talking about how you did X, Y, and Z when you were a child. And now they left that conversation and they're telling everybody you're a criminal, right? You don't know what, that's what I mean by you don't know what somebody's intent is. So I think for me as a person, I'm just very aware of what I like to share and don't like to share. First time I ever did an event, I told them all my business about my mom, her problems, my family problems. Until this day, I think about like, damn, that did not feel good. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like all these people, now they have an image. They had me at my weakest point. I was just at the Hartford Capitol. There were so many people. I was like, oh, my God. Like, what do I do? I want to tell them everything. And this is private stuff. This is the most yeah, personal thing like, you have, right? Until yeah. this day, I won't even let my mom watch the video. Mm. Because it's how do I have that conversation with my mom about not only am I exploiting myself, I put you on the blue screen. And I exploited mm. you. And now everybody knows what what's going on in your life. So there's there's levels to being able to tell your story. And I feel like even me as a person who's been in it for so long, long, long with quotations, right? Um you still find pieces where you're like, damn, I wish I never shared that. And it's you kind of learn as you go. I mean, one thing I've always heard from legislators, especially in this state, in Connecticut, mm-hmm. right, is if you can make, and it's sad to say because this is people's lives, mm-hmm. but if you can make a pocketbook argument to legislators, they're going to perk up. Meaning, if you can bring data that says, if you do this, that makes people's lives better, mm-hmm. it also will help increase our workforce, increase productivity somehow. It will decrease recidivism and we don't end up with, you know, people who are causing problems in our communities. Whatever it is, whatever data mm-hmm. point you can give them that makes them able to say, I can make an economic case to get behind this. Have you found that? Now you're sharing the playbook. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the playbook, huh? That's a strategy. That's, yeah. a little, that's, that's like Chill. page 45. Yeah. So, I mean, even even in addition to that, what's not working, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're seeing, you know, what are the talking points, I'll say, right, that you give to legislators, you feel like this should be the thing. If you care about anything, this will be mm-hmm. the thing that you care about, and you're finding it's not. As somebody who's becoming more familiar with policy work, I'm realizing that what's not working is that we're not focusing on the problem. When we are talking about juvenile justice reform or criminal reform, why are we negotiating on different topics? Why? And and I guess this just goes to the culture of politics. We always have to negotiate something. You won't help me unless I help Bob. And Bob won't help me unless I help Jeff. And it's always a, I have to do something for you for you to do something for me. It's like I thought we were doing something for our constituents. And that's what the conversation should be. And if I need your support in Avon to get something done in New Haven, you should be able to help me do that. Because as a state, we should we should want to be successful, right? We should want to make these changes. Now, all of that sounds very unrealistic for politics. Oh, um, for Connecticut. <laughs> for, exactly. So it's like I'm, I'm dreaming there. But what I will say is what you said works. Did, did you get a sense when you were doing that work at first that there were people who were asking you to do things and who were maybe leading this effort? who just actually didn't know what the hell it was like themselves. I mean, they were trying to help and they were trying to do something about it, but you were constantly running to people who just like did not fundamentally get it. I still run into people who do not (laughs) fundamentally get it. (laughs) So yes, absolutely. Tell me about that. I mean, what what was that like? What did they not get? What do people not get about, about this world? 
um, this world is in the, the youth justice stuff. Yep. People don't get what it's like to work with young people. And I think this is one of the beauties of what I've got to learn at the Alliance is we went through it. Get into our youth adult partnership, get into where we are now. We've crossed lots of mountains and are still crossing a lot. And it's just, it's been a lot of work to just realize where we were doing it right and where we were doing it wrong. And I think just a lot of people don't know how to work with young people, what it means. When they say meet them where they're at, that's literally what it means. If you got to pick them up at their house, if you have to have a meeting at 7.30 at night because everybody's at work or at school, like all of those things that go into working with young people, not everybody knows how to do that. Not everybody's willing to do it the right way either. When we started having this conversation about what we're going to do in this podcast series, we centered on a couple different words that that we want to get into. And everything started coalescing around the word recovery. And uh, recovery from COVID, recovery, economic recovery from COVID, just recovery as it is um, understood by different people. And that's one of the reasons we, we wanted to talk to you, because this idea of recover and how you recover a life, how you, how you reenter society after being incarcerated. What are some of the things that we need to know about recovery from incarceration that maybe a whole lot of people don't know. Incarceration is not going to help your recovery. I feel like that's the biggest point. When mm. we, if a kid commits something that people feel like is serious enough to incarcerate them, the question now is how is incarceration going to help that person recover? We oft, often lose sight of the fact that prisons do not work and they cause more harm than good. Right. So if we want a young person to be able to recover from whatever kind of trauma they're dealing with or whatever they have going on at home that led them to commit to what, commit what they did. Um, how is prison going to solve that problem? Right. Locked in a cell multiple times. They're not getting any one on one. Anything, nothing that has to do with reflecting, projecting, self-accountability, none of those things. They're not learning anything, right? And we kind of look at accountability like if you're being held accountable, that means you're learning something from it. You're being taught something different, and you don't get that in prison. So I think when we talk about recovery and how people reenter, we need to be conscious of what did they learn that's supposed to be helping them recover. Because if they didn't learn what they needed in prison mm -hmm. or wherever they were before that, that now they're reentering and we think they're going to be healed and they're ready to come back and be great citizens and all this other stuff, it's very unrealistic, right? Recovery looks like one-on-one. -on -one. Recovery looks like really unpacking the trauma. Recovery looks like an individualized plan to make sure we support you going back out. The, when you say accountability, it's so interesting because like, I think people think that maybe recovery comes along with accountability, but I mean, you, mm -hmm. wouldn't, you wouldn't have to look very closely at all in the American incarceration system to know that that's bullshit and it doesn't really work that way. Yep. Okay. Now, I wonder if if you ever think about if people want to hold people accountable or if people just want to punish other people. I want to punish you, whether you're you're 16 or 18 or 22 or 52, for the thing that you did, or if I want to hold you accountable in a way that hopefully we have some sort of shared outcome. How, how do you think like society actually thinks about that? This is I have this conversation with my friends a lot. <laughs> um, At parties, you guys just. <laughs> 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 right. 
I think nowadays people look at accountability and automatically think punishment. How can I punish you in the most way where it's going to really bother you and interrupt your life and like do the worst for you? And this is the this is the biggest challenge when it comes to working with victim advocates because often we only look at the, at the victim as one person. Right. And in reality, we need to be looking at all the ways everybody involved is a victim. And what does accountability really look like? It's not always I want you to go to jail because I want to punish like jail is the punishment. But everything that comes after that is also a punishment. You can no longer get a, a house that you want. You can no longer get an apartment that you want. You can no longer be accepted into certain schools that you want to go to. Like those are all punishments, too. So when we do this one big punishment of incarcerating somebody, there's 20 more punishments that come along with that. And is it really worth it? Again, Google goes back to, I want you to learn something. I don't want you to feel what I felt. I don't want you to hurt like I hurt. I want you to heal. I don't know. But that's, yes. And I feel that way and you feel that way. People don't. But largely, right, we, we just don't. I mean, we wouldn't yeah. have the system that we have if people felt that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, before you even jump into this, John, yeah. I'll also add that, right? Like, with any other system, if we saw the um, the efficacy be as low as the criminal justice system, we would reform it immediately. We oh, would 100%. stop putting money into it, right? I just had to look this up. So uh, the U.S.'s uh, recidivism rate here um, in our country is 44%. In Connecticut, some, other, some, some places are lower, some mm-hmm. places are higher. Connecticut is 37%. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's sort of like we are near the highest mm-hmm. numbers um, in the nation for uh, the our recidivism rate. It is not working. Why are we still putting money there? That's a million dollar question. Why are they still putting money there? I mean, it it goes back to that argument of people thinking that locking somebody away is the only way that we're going to achieve public safety. And this is why we cannot continue to use traditional ways to address whether it's youth behavior, youth crime, whatever it may be. We have to. This is my job every day. We have to try other programs. There's so many other programs that exist, whether it's in Connecticut or in a different state that work for populations who need it. If we don't, why not invest the money there instead of investing and wasting all of this money that we put into the prison system? So, so give right. us one. I mean, if you had 30 seconds with a lawmaker, I mean, what's one that works that you're Cardinal like? Messenger's Justice Center. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's my number one thing. Yeah. Credible Messengers Justice Center. Justice Center. I always talk about because I, again, going back to I feel like it's a silver bullet. Kids do not listen to people that they don't want to listen to. If you don't, if you don't look like me, you can't relate to me. You don't know where I came from. I'm not going to listen to you. I have no reason to. If we have more credible messengers lingering in the communities, in community spaces, in schools, I guarantee you kids will act completely different. It's, it's cheaper than putting cops in schools. Absolutely. I bet you By it a is. long shot. <laughs> I right? mean, it's, it's, cheaper, it's cheaper than putting cops in schools. It's cheaper than funding actual facilities to hold young people, right? It is cheaper than youth court systems. It's cheaper than, I mean, name it, name it, name it. There are so many ways that I think, think the state can benefit from this. But I'm actually not convinced. What you said a moment ago was, you know, we are, we, uh, aren't ready to get rid of the idea that, right, some people have to be locked up, that that the only way to um, uh, rehabilitate someone is if they're locked up. Mm-hmm. I'm actually wondering if this is more of a political issue, right, that it is easy to, to create 
campaign platforms if you are tough on crime. Absolutely. And there is a direct court, right? When we're saying tough on crime, the face that we think about for folks you have to be tough on are the face of young black and brown people. Mm-hmm. And you ask anybody who's an abolitionist or does organizing or whatever, and they say prisons are doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to house black and brown bodies. That is exactly what our prison system is doing. For whatever reason, what was it, 2019, we had 12% black kids under the age of 18 in the state, and they made 43% of the, popu- the prison population. That's insane. They don't even make up one-fourth of the state's population, but they make up almost half of youth incarcerated in Connecticut. But nobody talks about that. We have parents. I've sat down with parents and had conversations with them about police and schools. They start the conversation thinking that their kid needs it. And then by the end of the conversation, they're like, oh, well, maybe that's why my kid gets arrested so much. Or maybe that's why my kid gets in trouble all the time. I feel like that's a chilling revelation for them. Um, I think about – so. Uh, John knows this. I, I think you might know this because I've definitely said this to the community editorial board on which you serve mm-hmm. that, you know, my brother was incarcerated for mm-hmm. eight years. What I think, you know, for him, he'll come back and he's talking about spending time in prison. He does a lot of right, self-accountability talk. And he was like, well, that's what I needed at that time. I needed the structure. I needed the discipline to be able to, you know, hit, hit the straight and narrow path. I wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise. And if I try to bring in the conversation um, to him about, well, I don't know, I think you were funneled into the system and here are all the ways you might have been. And that is for him just a complete, he can't see that as a possibility. He sees that as, no, every decision I've made got me to this point. Mm. Have you have you interacted with that? And it sounds like the mom that you um, interacted with sort of is coming to that same place of, wait, my kid needs this structure. Without this structure, I don't know where he'll end up. And divorcing ourselves from the structure might actually be the thing that leads us more quickly to you know, liberation than leaning on the structure. I feel like the biggest disadvantage, disadvantage that communities of color have is that they don't recognize how damaging the system is. My mother, when I was younger, used to always tell me, I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to put you on probation. Why did she think that was going to stop me? I have no clue. She didn't think about the fact that if I was on probation after 18, it was a wrap for me. I wasn't going to be able, I was going to have a record. I think parents don't realize the impact of the things that are actually in place. And we trust the system way too much, way too much. We have kids who go into jail and come out completely insane. They don't know how to interact with people outside in the open world. My spouse and I've never really shared this much publicly, but my spouse did 10 years in jail when he was 13 years old, committed murder. The The kid that he killed, his best friend's mother, the, the kid's mother was there telling the courts, please do not arrest him. I already lost a child. I do not want to lose another one. When do you ever hear a mother say that? When do you ever hear a mother who, mind you, this is the mother of the child who passed away, say, please do not arrest this other kid for taking my kid's life because it's not going to work. I don't want you to take another kid from the street and put him in the system. Oh my. We don't hear enough of that, right? And the fact that we think that people will only gain structure and accountability in prisons is outrageous. New York has close-to-home facilities that they put kids there. That's their secure placements. Um, we just went and visit one last week. There was literally a building in the middle of the neighborhood, an apartment, 
And I was like, wow, okay, this is different. And I went in there and they have like gyms. All the doors lock. They have the handcuffs if they need them for transport. But it looks like an apartment. There's a regular lady cooking regular food. They go upstairs, they have the gym. And the way that they explain their structure to us, they said, everything we do here, we do as a group. If one kid has a problem and doesn't want to move on to the next part of the schedule for the day, everybody's stuck in that room until he decides to get up and go. And guess what? That's how they cheat. That's how they teach structure. Or that's how they teach accountability. And accountability, right? And not only that, they're building camaraderie while they're at it. Because now we have one kid who woke up and doesn't want to fix his bed, and the other kid's like, yo, bro, I'll help you fix your bed so we could get to breakfast. Like, come on, I'm going to help you, right? They said things where, like, they've had kids who completely don't get along, and the first day they get there, they're like, listen, I just want to sleep. I don't want to worry about you killing me. I don't want to worry about you bothering me while I'm sleeping. Can we just hash out our beef while we're here and just let me sleep? Right. These kids are going there looking for something complete, something that prisons are not providing them. But we we tend not to listen to kids yeah. and not just around this. Right. We tend not to listen to kids about what school's supposed to be like or mm-hmm. what any other sort of life's supposed to be like. And I don't know. That's like a harder ship to turn around. Right. Like that. I don't see how that's going <laughs> to how that's going to change anytime soon. Like we yeah. don't trust children because we think that. You, you don't know. have enough experience yet. You to don't be. have enough experience. The only way to do this is to punish you, to have some guy tell you what to do. And it's like, do we trust children or do we not? Because in one minute we don't trust children, and then we trust them enough to understand what they're doing and charge them as adults. Mm. Well, see, there's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so do we trust them or do we not trust them? And that's the argument I find myself having with people all the time. Is like, you don't trust children, and they're immature until they're 13 and they commit a serious offense, and now they're adults. Where's the middle? Right. Do you, are they children or are they not children? And I think, right, yeah. like, you know, as an adult, what to let a kid decide and not decide when it comes down to how they need help, what they need help for. What, what do you need to be successful? What do you need to not be involved in what you're involved in right now? More than likely, a parent's not going to have that conversation with their kid. Right. Kids often don't tell their parents all those things. That is where a credible messenger comes in handy. What if the kid had a credible messenger to go to to talk about what their needs are? Right. Yeah. You can, you can go to prison for a long time for something you do when you're 13. You can drive at 16. You can vote at 18. You can drink at 21. But the car, the car rental company doesn't let you take out a car until you're 25. And do you know why? It's because every scientific study that's ever been done on the human brain shows that the human brain isn't fully baked, fully cooked until about a year from now for you, right? Until you're around 25 years old. Imagine I'm going to be a genius in a year. Well, that's right. That's right. I mean, imagine what you'll be doing in a year. But, but that is one of the remarkable things about, about this conversation whenever it comes up. We, held, we are holding people accountable for things they did when they're half the age, mm-hmm. half the age of when your brain is fully put together. I mean, and it goes back to what, what Mercy was saying about if, if it's a political thing, right? Nobody cared about car theft until last year. Nobody cared about car theft. Not on a, not on a political stage. Not, not on, on a, stage. exactly, right? This was a New Haven, Waterbury, Hartford, Bridgeport thing. Nobody cared when it was just in those cities. Now that it has moved out, not only have people started to care, but it was a perfect grab for, back to what you were saying about harsh on crime, tough on crime stuff, right? And people love when you're holding people accountable. It's an easy way to build up your poll numbers, right? And this is why picking and choosing when we use data to support the same 
type of issue. It just does. It doesn't work like that. But you said this before, Mercy. Right? If if you hooked up the data, the real data mm -hmm. about how this system works and whether or not it works for American society, we would have thrown it out long ago. Mm -hmm. But we're not doing it for that reason. I will say that th it kind of reminds me of the ad campaign that we just put out because we we just released poster boards or billboards, not poster boards under crediting them um, billboards. And it says, what if your child was a thousand percent more likely to be locked up? And then underneath it says they aren't if they're white, right? We've had this really large disconnect with getting primarily white parents to understand how important it is to be talking about not incarcerating children because their kids are not incarcerated, right? Very, you'll see a very small percentage of white kids that are actually incarcerated in the state of Connecticut we've been looking at how to approach that. How do you get a parent to actually care? It's really hard to get people to empathize. I appreciate when there are, people call them white allies. I just call them allies, right? When we have white allies who are able to lead the way when it comes to connecting to communities that aren't necessarily inner cities, um, because often they don't connect with like somebody like me coming in the room kind of reminds me we went to West Hartford and we held a community um, conversation with people in West Hartford about police and schools when we got there not what there was no way we thought we were going to get everybody to agree on not having police in schools by the time we left that conversation we were able to get people to say oh, you know what I love my police in, in schools in West Hartford but maybe they don't need to be in schools in Waterbury and that was because we did two hours of trying to get people to empathize mm -hmm. with black kids and Spanish kids. And it was just like the hardest thing ever. It was kind of like talking to a brick wall at one point, but it was like, no, you're going to get it. And thank God the activity that we used is based off of my experience when I got expelled from school. So as they were saying things, I was able to say, well, actually, that's my story. So now you're talking about this delinquent girl that you want to go to jail. Imagine if they would have put me in jail. And then they're like, oh, shit, it's her story. Like, oh, I didn't know it was her story. And it's like, yeah, you got a real person's story behind that paper you're reading, right? And through that, they're able to see like, okay, there's, we got, we got to a point where we were humanizing the conversation. I mean, we're talking about the national mental health crisis that everyone is um, impacted by right now. What do you think is the result of this kind of two-year-long, you know, grave impact on the system and the kids who are being housed in it. If we keep going in the direction we're going right now as a as Connecticut, it is not going to be good, right? We're having conversations about increasing ways to incarcerate young people. After everything we just seen happen during the pandemic, after all the evidence we had pre-pandemic, thinking that increasing the, the opportunities and, and ability to incarcerate kids is going to do anything better is the complete opposite of what should, we should be doing, right? Um, if people do not leave this pandemic and realize, oh, shit, we need to invest in housing insecurity, economic insecurity. We need to be investing in trauma services. We need to be investing in credible messengers. If they don't leave the pandemic with that thought, then I don't know what pandemic they live through. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Th thanks very much for coming in. It's, it's good, to, good to sit and talk with you. This is Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. You can go to connecticutmirror.org slash untold for bonus content and photos from this episode. Look us up on social, drop us an email, and don't forget to send us your untold stories and tell us what's going on in your community. And if you like what you've heard, you can leave us a review and share this episode with a friend who would love it too. Our reporter for this episode was Ryan Lindsay. 
Our music is composed and produced by Mark Lyon. Graphic design for Untold by Jordan Hertz. Our intern is Grace McFadden. We have digital support from Kyle Constable. Untold is produced and edited by Harriet Jones. Thanks to the Connecticut Mirror's executive editor, Elizabeth Hamilton, and publisher, Bruce Putterman. Thanks, hey, so, thanks you, so much for joining did us. Did you leave anything untold? <laughs> did I leave anything, <laughs> leave anything untold? Mercy, I've actually been meaning to tell you. <laughs> I just, uh, just I funny, it. funny story, I actually. actually uh, you just give me the sense yeah. of someone who's holding back. <laughs> I'm, holding, I'm holding everything back at this point. I know. <laughs>